Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com slash immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. Some interesting cases this week, as always. Five, to be specific, including a great win on reasonable relocation. And also, and although it seems like a lifetime ago at this point, Attorney General Barr announced this week that he'll be leaving his position as AG very soon. If reporting on his temporary successor is to be believed, I need to start practicing my pronunciation of the name Rosen. Could have been a lot worse. On to the cases. First is matter of MAMZ, published by the BIA. The BIA is back with another decision on expert testimony and the corroboration requirements in immigration court. This case arises out of an asylum claim for an individual from Mexico. The respondent, Mr. MAMZ, previously lived in Mexico and was threatened with death by individuals that he did not know. They set his car on fire and on another occasion pointed a gun at him and threatened to kill him, saying he had stolen from them. The immigration judge certified and took testimony from an expert, quote, on general country conditions and cartel activity in Mexico, end quote, who was also a private investigator and previously a law enforcement officer for the U.S. government. After the expert's own investigation, the expert determined that the incidents occurred because the respondent's stepdaughter was arrested in the U.S. while trafficking drugs for Mexican cartels and that the cartels therefore believed that the respondent owed them her debt. The expert testified that, as is their practice, the cartels would target all members of the daughter's family for this reason. The IJ found that indeed, the respondent in this case was part of a valid particular social group comprised of family members of his stepdaughter, but that he had not suffered harm that rose to the level of past persecution, and that in any event, he didn't actually know who harmed him or why meaning that he couldn't show that he was harmed because he was in the family. In so holding, the IJ largely disregarded the expert's report and testimony as speculative, 
and similarly denied Convention Against Torture Protection as, you guessed it, speculative. Here, the BIA affirmed, and focused the majority of its holding on the IJ's decision regarding the expert. The BIA first discussed the framework used to govern expert testimony, which it explained in great detail very recently in matter of JGT, discussed on the podcast on September 28, 2020. Then the BIA added some more stuff. It held that when it comes to factual findings, such as the motive for persecution, expert testimony is certainly evidence. But like all pieces of evidence, quote, the question of what probative value or weight to give to expert evidence is a determination for the immigration judge to make as the fact finder, end quote. If an IJ disregards or finds unpersuasive expert testimony, the IJ must, quote, explain the reasons behind the factual findings, end quote, that the IJ is making different from the expert. Here, the IJ sufficiently explained the reasons for disregarding the expert's testimony, namely that they were speculative in light of the entire, fairly thin record. And without the expert's testimony, there was no real evidence that the respondent was harmed due to his family membership because, indeed, he didn't even really know the identity of who threatened him. The BIA also held that the IJ did not need to give the expert and respondent notice and an opportunity to present additional evidence before disregarding the expert's testimony. Although this case arose in the Ninth Circuit, the BIA distinguished the Ninth Circuit's seminal 2011 decision in Ren v. Holder, in which the Ninth Circuit held that IJs must, quote, inform a credible respondent about the specific corroborating evidence necessary to meet his burden of proof and provide a continuance to obtain the evidence, end quote, before denying a case. Nothing in Wren, according to the BIA, pertains to decisions about the, quote, persuasiveness of expert testimony, end quote. So the respondent did not succeed on his case. I will say this, though. His attorney made quite the case, despite an obvious lack of, at least initially, necessary evidence, eventually even presenting oral argument before the BIA. Here are some more pertinent observations. First, despite the IJ's finding to the contrary, DHS conceded on appeal that the harm in this case the respondent having his car set on fire and being threatened one time with death at gunpoint, rose to the level of past persecution in the Ninth Circuit. Remember that one, Ninth Circuit practitioners. And remember this. Nothing in this decision undercuts the long-standing principle that experts, unlike pure fact witnesses, can testify to the ultimate legal or factual conclusions in a case, so long as the expert is properly qualified. And if an expert offers such an opinion, an IJ must, quote, explain the reasons, end quote, in a manner that will withstand appellate review before disregarding that testimony. That is not necessarily an easy thing to do if counsel has appropriately, quote, established a witness's area of expertise, end quote. So again, remember that the expert is on your side and that they're the only expert in the room in immigration court. Voir dire your expert? Get them qualified to testify on the most important aspects of your case and submit important documents that your expert relied upon to make their testimony as difficult to explain away as possible. And that is matter of MAMZ. Next, we're going to stick with asylum and head to the First Circuit, Marquez Paz v. Barr. 
published on December 18th, 2020. This is a very short case about the nexus requirement for asylum and withholding of removal. Mr. Marquez Paz fled Honduras after an unidentified man repeatedly tried to get him to sell cocaine because, Mr. Marquez Paz believed, he had owned and then recently sold a large parcel of land. When Mr. Marquez Paz delayed accepting the offer, he and his family were threatened with death at gunpoint. Mr. Marquez Paz pretended to accept the offer to save his life and then fled to the U.S. in 2014. He was eventually placed in removal proceedings, where he applied for asylum and related relief. The asylum application was denied as time-barred. Apparently, it wasn't filed within one year of Mr. Marquez Paz's arrival into the United States. And the rest of it was denied on the merits. The First Circuit affirmed the denial. It held that Mr. Marquez Paz failed to establish any nexus between any persecution and a protected ground. Specifically, Mr. Marquez Paz's belief that he was targeted because he was a Honduran landowner was merely speculative. And that's about it. Again, short case. Although in a footnote, the First Circuit did, quote, assume without deciding that Honduran landowners are a valid particular social group, end quote. So I'll take that. And that is Marquez Paz v. Barr. Moving on, we have Otto v. Barr, published by the Tenth Circuit on December 14th, 2020. This is our lone win for non-citizens this week, and it's an asylum and reasonable relocation case from Ghana. Mr. Otto is from Ghana and came to the U.S. in 2017. He was found to have a credible fear of persecution, and so he was placed in removal proceedings to present his asylum case. Mr. Otto is the son of the chief of the small Chala tribe in Ghana. The Chala have been in a land dispute with the neighboring Atwode tribe for years, which ultimately led to severe violence and the attempted murder of Mr. Otto, his family, and their tribe. Even when Mr. Otto renounced his title and moved to Ghana's capital of Accra, he was followed with death threats. His uncle was murdered, and then he was shot at in Accra. He fled Ghana with his family, although his father remains in Ghana as the head of the tribe, but he's heavily guarded at all times. In immigration court, and after some back and forth between the IJ and the BIA, Mr. Otto was found to have suffered past persecution, thereby giving DHS the burden to establish that Mr. Otto could reasonably relocate in Ghana to avoid the persecution that he feared. The IJ and then the BIA ultimately held that DHS met that burden. But the Tenth Circuit held that the BIA and the IJ's findings on reasonable relocation were not supported by substantial evidence. Quoting the BIA from 2012 in matter of MZMR, the Tenth Circuit noted that, quote, because the purpose of the relocation rule is not to require an applicant to stay one step ahead of persecution in the proposed area, the new location must present circumstances that are substantially better than those giving rise to a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of the original claim, end quote. This requires a multi-factor analysis, including, but of course not limited to, quote, social and cultural constraints, end quote, that may affect the reasonableness of relocation. 
Here, the tenth held that the IJ and the BIA erred in relying on the fact that the Atwod was a small tribe with small territory, because, after all, they were able to reach Mr. Ado in Accra, the capital. And even though there are of course different places in Ghana besides the Atwoods territory and Accra, DHS did not point to any other specific region and, this is important, quote, offered no evidence that the Atwood are not present in other Ghanaian cities to which it would have petitioned or relocate, end quote, or that the Atwood lack the, quote, ability to track and threaten, end quote, Mr. Otto. Because again, DHS had the burden on reasonable relocation after the past persecution finding. This conclusion was buttressed by the fact that Mr. Otto received death threats on his phone, which of course he can receive no matter where he is in Ghana, and can rise to the level of persecution. And even though his sister remained safely in Ghana, it was clear to the Tenth Circuit that the Atwood were targeting the males of the family. So Mr. Otto wins. Congratulations, Carrie Hong and the Boston College Law School, in addition to the Clinic BIA Pro Bono Project, for another win for Petitioner. Here's some more on reasonable relocation. So burdens are important. Because past persecution was found, quote, DHS must demonstrate that there is a specific area of the country where the risk of persecution to the respondent falls below the well-founded fear level, end quote. Therefore, when the IJ held, quote, that there is no evidence that petitioner has any recognition outside his neighborhood such that he would be unsafe anywhere in the country, end quote, and faulted Mr. Otto for having, quote, never attempted to relocate, end quote, the IJ erred because it wasn't Mr. Otto's burden to show any of this. DHS had to prove that he could relocate. And according to the Tenth Circuit, the U.S. government and USCIS, quote, has itself emphasized that there is no requirement that an applicant first attempt to relocate in his or her country before flight, end quote. And here's an interesting final wrinkle. Mr. Otto was physically removed during the petition for review before the Tenth Circuit. Apparently, he's in a, quote, safe location abroad, end quote. As explained in the Tenth Circuit's Igbor decision last week, ICE must now, quote, facilitate his return. And that is Otto Vibar. Next, we have Hernandez Alvarez Vibar, published by the Seventh Circuit on December 16th, 2020. There's a lot going on in this case, but it's primarily about changes of law and how that affects motions to reopen. Mr. Hernandez Alvarez was a lawful permanent resident, but at 20 years old, he was convicted of indecent solicitation of a child in Illinois. This followed an undercover operation where he thought he was chatting with a 15-year-old girl. The conviction was found to be a INA Section 101A43U aggravated felony attempt to commit the aggravated felony sexual abuse of a minor, as defined at INA Section 101A43A. And so Mr. Hernandez Alvarez lost his LPR status in immigration court. The BIA affirmed, and Mr. Hernandez Alvarez timely filed a motion to reconsider. But while the motion was pending, he was physically removed to Mexico. So because he was removed, the BIA found that it lacked authority to consider the motion to reconsider. Mr. Hernandez Alvarez filed a petition for review in the Seventh Circuit from Mexico 
arguing that his conviction couldn't be an attempt to commit a sexual abuse of a minor when the victim was actually an FBI agent on the end of a computer. The Seventh Circuit rejected that argument in a published decision in 2005. Fast forward to 2019. Mr. Hernandez Alvarez filed a motion to reopen and reconsider with the BIA. Because here's the thing. At the time of his conviction in 2002, the Illinois criminal statute defined a child as a, quote, person under 17 years of age, end quote. This, Mr. Hernandez Alvarez argued, therefore meant that under the Supreme Court's 2017 decision, Esquivel-Quintana v. Sessions, his conviction couldn't be an attempt to commit a Section 101A43A sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony, because in Esquivel-Quintana, the Supreme Court held that, quote, the generic federal definition of sexual abuse of a minor requires that the victim be younger than 16, end quote. And again, in 2002, Illinois allowed for conviction if the child was 16 years old. Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez also argued that his NTA, which lacked the date and time of his initial hearing, never vested the immigration judge with jurisdiction based on the Supreme Court's decision in Ferreira v. Sessions. And finally, Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez argued that the BIA erred in finding it lacked authority to decide his motion to reconsider all those years ago, because in 2010, the Seventh Circuit held that a physical removal does not in fact divest the BIA of jurisdiction to consider a motion to reopen or reconsider. So lots going on here. Now, although motions to reopen and reconsider have strict filing deadlines, Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez asked the BIA to equitably toll those deadlines due to all those changes in the law. And in the alternative, he asked the BIA to exercise its sua sponte authority to reopen and reconsider his case. The BIA declined to do so. Before the Seventh Circuit in this second petition for review, Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez additionally asserted that his motion to reconsider actually did meet the 30-day deadline, because he timely filed his first motion to reconsider in 2004, which the BIA erroneously denied, and so his current motion should relate back to that first motion, and should be considered timely. The Seventh Circuit dismissed that argument because Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez did not make it before the BIA so the Seventh Circuit held that he failed to exhaust his administrative remedies as to that issue. Tough end to a creative legal argument. As to equitable tolling on account of Esquivel-Quintana, the Seventh Circuit held that Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez failed to exercise due diligence, as is required for equitable tolling, because he waited almost two years after Esquivel-Quintana was issued to bring his motion. Turning to the defective NTA argument, Recall, the Supreme Court in Pereira held that for the stop-time rule to apply for cancellation of removal, an NTA must have the date and time for the initial hearing listed in the NTA itself. Many circuits, and even eventually the BIA, and including the Seventh Circuit last year in Ortiz-Santiago v. Barr, later held, relying on Pereira, that an NTA lacking the date and time of the initial hearing violates the statute and regulations and therefore constitutes violation of a claims processing rule, which may require dismissal of removal proceedings if timely asserted. But here, the Seventh Circuit held, even assuming Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez timely asserted the argument, that relief was not warranted, 
because to succeed on a claims processing rule violation, the non-citizen must show that he or she was prejudiced as a result. Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez did not make that showing, particularly as he received the notice of hearing with the deficient information shortly after receiving the NTA. Finally, turning to the sua sponte reopening argument, the Seventh Circuit first noted that its jurisdiction is limited to reviewing denials of sua sponte reopening only where there exist, quote, constitutional transgressions and other legal errors that the board may have committed in disposing of such a motion, end quote. Here, and although it's a bit complicated, the Seventh held that essentially, the BIA did not commit a reviewable error when it determined that Esquivel-Quintana, which was published over a decade after Mr. Hernandez-Alvarez was ordered removed, required the BIA to sua sponte reopen his removal proceedings. So, tough case all around with lots of legal arguments. Here's some more on NTAs and jurisdiction to review sua sponte denials. Riveting. This is the first case, to my knowledge, that endeavored to explain just what prejudice might look like to achieve a Pereira-based dismissal of removal proceedings. Quote, We look, for example, to whether the defects in the notice to appear deprived the alien of the ability to attend or prepare for the hearing, including the ability to secure counsel. End quote. Okay, then. Not a definitive list, but it's a start. Run with it. Finally, and returning to sua sponte reopening, the Seventh Circuit did hold that it has authority to review arguments that the BIA, quote, ignored evidence that the alien tendered in support of his request or misapprehended the basis for the motion, end quote. So there's your standard on petitions for review of denials of sua sponte motions to reopen. And that is Hernandez-Alvarez v. Barr. Finally, we have Smith v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on December 18, 2020. This case is about CIMTs. Mr. Smith came to the United States from Jamaica as an LPR in 1973, at the age of 12. He never naturalized. As relevant to this case, he obtained two problematic convictions— a 2006 conviction for Florida vehicular homicide in violation of Florida Statute Section 782.071, and Florida aggravated assault in 1988. DHS alleged that Mr. Smith was removable for these convictions because both are crimes involving moral turpitude, or CIMTs. And an LPR who is convicted of two or more CIMTs not arising out of the same criminal scheme is removable. An IJ and then the BIA found that both crimes were CIMTs and ordered Mr. Smith removed. Now there's case law that aggravated assault is a CIMT, and in any event, it appears Mr. Smith didn't challenge that finding. So this case is all about vehicular homicide. Because remember, DHS needs to point to two CIMTs to remove an LPR like Mr. Smith. So no one is denying that vehicular homicide is a terrible thing. By definition, people die as a result. But not all crimes match the definition of a CIMT, particularly where, as with vehicular homicide, there is no knowing or willful mens rea, or culpable mental state, involved. 
Here, the 11th Circuit said that it didn't matter, because, quote, moral turpitude may inhere in criminally reckless conduct when sufficiently base, vile, or depraved, end quote. According to the 11th Circuit, the Florida Supreme Court has held that the least culpable conduct criminalized by the vehicular homicide statute is driving with willful or wanton disregard that the driving will, quote, likely cause the death of or great bodily harm to another, end quote. Accordingly, the 11th Circuit held that the statute requires, quote, criminal reckless conduct, end quote, and that, at least in the case of vehicular homicide, the, quote, offense contains the necessary mens rea to constitute a crime of moral turpitude, end quote. Mr. Smith, therefore, was found to have been convicted of two CIMTs and lost his green card. But here's an interesting observation about Florida's standard jury instructions. Mr. Smith's attorneys argued that Florida actually does not require a mens rea of criminal recklessness in its vehicular homicide statute because Florida's standard jury instructions don't actually require willful or wanton behavior, nor do Florida's standard jury instructions require a conscious disregard. The Eleventh Circuit rejected this argument for a couple reasons, but the first reason was because the Eleventh Circuit held that Florida's standard jury instructions, quote, do not necessarily have the force of precedent, end quote. And the Florida Supreme Court, quote, expressly refrains from determining whether they correctly state the law of Florida, end quote. Or put another way, the Eleventh Circuit does not believe that Florida's standard jury instructions are conclusive evidence of the elements of a crime in the state of Florida. Remember that one, next time an IJ or DHS relies on Florida's standard jury instructions, in the categorical analysis. And that is Smith v. U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.